The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Who killed Abraham Lincoln? Everyone knows it was John Wilkes Booth, and everyone who's done any reading on it knows that he led a conspiracy, not a nutty black helicopter conspiracy involving the Secretary of War, but a real conspiracy of low-rent criminals like Lewis Powell, her Payne, George Atzerod, Mary Surratt, and her son John. Booth was killed resisting arrest by soldiers. The others were all tried and executed, except the one who, next to Booth, was the ringleader. Who was he? How did he get away? And what happened when he finally got caught? We'll track down one of the mysteries of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln with Michael Schein, author of John Surratt, The Lincoln Assassin Who Got Away, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you, as usual, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina, but speaking only for myself, not for the History Department or the Thomas Harriet College of Arts and Sciences or the Department of Academic Affairs or anything other than myself. My guest, likewise, will do the same. 
It is a beautiful and extremely hot evening in June of 2015. The world's attention turns to the Women's World Cup soccer tournament. I promised not to talk about it last week to avoid jinxing the USA women, and so far so good on that score. It is uh, the last show of the season, and uh, the last one that will come from this wing of the third floor of the Brewster building as I'll be finishing up my uh, term, my sentence, as chair of the history department uh, later this summer. We'll take a break from shows and come back in September, and we'll move the Civil War Talk Radio World headquarters a few doors down the hall and set up shop in a different office, and we can talk about that in September. Uh, a couple of weeks ago here, I was talking about leading a tour of Civil War historic sites for the, <coughs> excuse me, uh, for Stephen Ambrose historical tours, and I should have said more about mentioning the day before I went on that tour. I got to spend a really uh, wonderful afternoon at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville with the chair of the ECU Board of Trustees and family members. It turns out uh, the chair is a Civil War talk radio listener. It was a lot of fun that afternoon to share Civil War history with some fellow pirates from ECU. And it also brought home to me the fact there are actually other people out there listening to the show, not just my mother and the guest's family, but other people, including some affiliated with the university. That shouldn't have surprised me. I wouldn't say it surprised me. It's maybe not the right word, but you don't always think of it that way. Then this week, to push the point further, I received a series of very nice emails from different listeners uh, that reminded me of how far-reaching the Civil War talk radio community has become. And I wanted to share two of those with you before we get started tonight. <clears throat> One came to me secondhand from Dr. Richard Summers, who was last week's guest on the show. Uh, Dick heard from a former colleague of his at the U.S. Army War College, uh, who is a retired Air Force colonel and now teaching at the Saudi Arabian War College. He wrote to Dick about listening to his show last week. He said, Today we listened to your interview on Civil War Talk Radio, you in Pennsylvania, the interviewer in the Carolinas, and U.S. listeners here in Saudi Arabia. Quite a marvel of the modern age. And then uh, the Air Force colonel pointed out, uh, you, you said something to the effect, history is exciting and it's the job of the historian to capture and convey that excitement. That's so true for an instructor here in the kingdom or an aspiring park ranger. So, a valid point about the importance of conveying the excitement of history, and that tied in with the second email. Uh, this one came from a uh, person who I believe is a psychologist uh, who says he's been listening for almost 10 years, which shocks me we've been doing this for 10 years. And he has written a little bit about this show on his own blog, which is called Approximately Forever. You can look that up yourself. But I'll just share a line or two of what he says about this. Uh, since I've learned an awful lot about the Civil War by listening to the show, I've also learned a little bit about the field of history itself. Historians gather evidence about the past, and they analyze and interpret that evidence to make inferences about the bigger picture. As I've come to understand, a professional historian wouldn't tell the story of such and such a regiment or such and such a battle simply to tell that story. 
Rather, they'd research that regiment or battle to see what it can tell us about the past in general. So uh, it says that in my book, uh, I didn't just tell the story of the Army of the Ohio, but made an argument and provided evidence to support the argument. Makes sense to me. That's what I do in my own academic work. The methods for gathering and interpreting evidence in psychology are different from those used in history, but I recognize the same broad outline. Well, as I was reading that, I was just smiling and saying, yeah, he gets it. That's, that's what we do. And then the next paragraph, he writes this. Here's the thing, though. I really like the stories. I just find them fascinating, and I think they're worth telling whether or not they make some larger point. I even cringe a little when I hear a professional historian referring to a given battle as, quote, insignificant. And uh, I'll leave the rest for you to read, listeners, but uh, the author goes on to make the very valid point that no battle is insignificant to those who are there, uh, and certainly not to the families of those who lose their lives uh, in any battle. And as with the Air Force colonel in Saudi Arabia, he's completely right that the stories are critical. If we just analyze the past, uh, no matter how insightful we are, it's pointless if no one's going to read the stories or remember them or be moved by them. The stories are the heart of history as they have been since Herodotus. Well, with comments coming in like that, I'm inspired to want to do this show all the rest of the summer. But as I said a moment ago, we really are at the end of our season. Our next live show will be the beginning of September. You can find out when the next live show is up and who's going to be on it by keeping an eye on www.impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War talk radio companion site run by Mark Gaffney. It is always the place to go to find out what we're doing here. You can also go to the PayPal button on that website, click it, and send a contribution to the show. The show is not a 501c3. You do not get a tax deduction. I can spend the money on anything for good or ill. I can spend it on my daughter's college tuition or a cold beverage on a hot day like today. I could even buy Civil War books with it. And it brings me to the last thing I want to say before we get started here. As a sort of thank you to you for listening to the show, uh, I thought I would share a recent discovery uh, of Civil War books that I purchased that might give you something to read over the summer. If you go to the website for Henrico County in Virginia, uh, H-E-N-R-I-C-O is how it's spelled, go to the Henrico County official website and dig around a little bit. Uh, I'll leave it as an exercise for you to solve. You can find in their publications area a publication called Henrico County Field of Honor by Lewis H. Manarin, or Manarin, M-A-N-A-R-I-N. It's a history of all the Civil War engagements, military engagement in Henrico County, which includes the city of Richmond, so there's a lot of action there. I have not yet read this, partly because it's a huge two-volume hardbound set, but it's quite spectacular in appearance. It is filled with maps and illustrations, some of them in color, and it describes in detail almost every uh, battle, the engagement of any size that takes place. And the thing about it is the county of Henrico is selling these giant two-volume sets for $30. You could eat dinner at Applebee's with a friend, I guess, for that amount, 
Or you could get this lavish two-volume hardbound set for $30. It is an absurd price. I have no stake in these. Uh, I just heard about them a month ago and made sure I got my own before I told you about them uh, so they don't all disappear. But you can go there and order them. Uh, it's the Civil War book bargain of the year. So uh, something to, uh, if, if you get one, uh, enjoy it this summer, read it. Uh, I don't know anything about the author. I should look see about having him on the show next year. We'll look into that. Well, enough about the past. Let's go now to the distant past and talk about John Surratt, the Lincoln assassin who got away. Uh, that's the title of a book by Michael Shine. Mr. Shine, are you there? Yeah, I am here. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, let me first confirm, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yes, uh, but go ahead and call me Mike or Michael, that's fine. Okay, and call me Jerry, please. It will save us both both a lot of time. So, uh, this is a... Well, let me start with your background, as, as we often do on the show. Uh, most, by a slim margin, I'd say maybe half of the guests on this show are professional historians, maybe less than that, might be 50-50, a lot of people write about Civil War-related topics who do something else for a living than write about the Civil War. Uh, tell us about your day job and your, your background. I come at it from a little bit of a different angle, but not terribly different. Uh, I have a JD. I'm a lawyer. And I got very interested when I was teaching American legal history. So I was not only practicing law, but I was also teaching American legal history at, at the Seattle University School of Law. I got very interested in a case that John Marshall, the great uh, early chief justice, had handled when he was a young lawyer. And I ended up writing a novel, a historical novel called Justice Seats, based on that. And... Uh, got pretty thoroughly bitten by the writer bug. So in addition to practicing law and teaching uh, legal history, I've been doing some writing. And uh, a couple books later, uh, that led me to this nonfiction book. After I'd written two historical novels, and you know, a lot of people said, well, which part's true, which part isn't? So I thought, well, why don't I try to write one that's all nonfiction? And, and then I can say... Pretty much all of it. Well, that, that is one of the challenges of historical fiction, and I admit I don't read too much of it because uh, I'm like that guy in the movie theater who's always saying, oh, that could never happen, uh, or it didn't happen that way. Nobody wants to sit next to me, certainly not my wife. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm that way with historical fiction, but this is, as you say, it is nonfiction. Uh, what kind of law did you practice, or do you practice? I, I always started out as a general trial lawyer, mostly personal injury and labor-related matters, and worked my way into doing appellate law, so mostly appellate litigation, although I still do trial support for complex litigation, and again, from the plaintiff side of things. Did you study history before law school? Did, did, was this like a long yes, time passion? Yes. Well, I went to uh, Reed College in Portland, and mm -hmm. I was a political science major. I took enough history, straight history subjects, that I could have 
majored in history. Um, I had enough credits, but I also took a lot of political science and ended up writing my thesis on that side of of things. Um, so yeah, I I had taken uh, a lot of history, and then I, in law school I took a class on American legal history and became very interested in it and. I've done a lot of reading since and keeping up with my students. <laughs> that, that's definitely a challenge. I found law school in many ways more challenging than history graduate school in terms of the rigor of analytical thinking that's required. Uh, but certainly the, the two disciplines do have a lot in common. And, and well, that shows yes. I mean, the law is... I mean, it's based on history, if you will. It's research mm-hmm. and then supporting your propositions with something that's already happened, some sort of precedent. So it, there is a lot of overlap. One of the distinctions I see in it, though, is that a in the law, you start with a, a conclusion that you wish to support. You have a client... You have a position in an appellate case. You have a position you want the court to reach. And then you go through the, the evidence. You go through the, the cases. You do the research to find precedents that support your side. And being ethical, you also identify those that don't support your side and address those. But ultimately, you're trying to find a way to, to convince people of a particular side. Whereas a historian may start with a premise, with a conclusion, just to have something to work with, a hypothesis. If the evidence pushes the historian in the opposite direction, then you follow the evidence. And the book you write may be very different from the one you thought you were writing when you started. Did did you start out, for example, knowing John Surratt was guilty or not guilty, and then work to support that, or did the evidence push you? Uh, well, uh, hopefully, I certainly am uh, cognizant of the difference that you're talking about and tried to approach it with an open mind. And even at the very end, I, I put it to the reader, uh, what say you, uh, guilty, not guilty of conspiracy to kidnap Lincoln, of conspiracy to assassinate Lincoln, of abandoning his mother, sort of matricide by proxy of the state uh, as he was accused of and and things like that. So each step of the way, I try to lay out evidence on both sides of the question. And I think what I can really bring that's of special value, if there's anything I do bring of special value to this inquiry, it's that uh, when it comes to his trial, I can really read a transcript and get it and lay it out in a way that is both interesting and uh, and accurate. That is a, a technical, there is a, a level of technical knowledge certainly needed to read the, the trial material that not every historian will bring to the table. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll maybe give a, our listeners a quick narrative on uh, the, the assassination conspiracy so we can then tear it apart uh, tonight talking with Michael Shine, author of John Surratt The Lincoln Assassin Who Got Away I'm Jerry Prokopovich and this is Civil War Talk Radio
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Michael Shine. He's the author of John Surratt, The Lincoln Assassin Who Got Away. And we talked a little bit about uh, legal history, uh, uh, writing history from a a lawyer's perspective, uh, bringing together the disciplines of law and history. In this case, which is peculiarly one of of both uh, dimensions, Mike, could you give us a thumbnail sketch of who John Surratt was? Uh, Obviously, that's really the topic of the whole book, but if someone only knows John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln, uh, what role did, did this guy play? Did he drive the getaway buggy? Uh, who was he? Uh, well, Jerry, there was some thought of that when they were planning a kidnapping, but to, to start out, he was, you know, he was a young, young man from southern Maryland, which was pretty much a pro-secession secession kind of area of the country. Most of his influences were uh, sympathetic to the Confederate cause, and he was uh, born in 1844, so when the war broke out, he was a very young man, you know, in his about 17 or 18 years old, and caught up in the enthusiasm of the Confederate cause. Uh, in 1862, he left school and enlisted in the Confederate service and was quickly put to work as a courier because he knew all the back roads of southern Maryland from growing up there, and uh, so he became associated with the Confederate Secret Service, passing messages back and forth and passing between the uh, uh, over cross enemy lines. And then uh, he was also serving, he took his father's post as postmaster 
in Surrattsville, Maryland, and so he was instrumental in being able to pass uh, mail from south to north and vice versa. His uh, family tavern at Surrattsville is probably well known to many of your listeners. It is the first stop that John Wilkes Booth made after uh, having shot Lincoln. It was a uh, safe house for Confederate uh, operatives who were traveling in that part of the world, and uh, so he was pretty deeply involved. Ultimately, he was Booth's closest associate during the four months prior to the assassination. He met Booth uh, in uh, December of 1864 and was frequently by his side and working with him from that time forward until just about two weeks before the assassination. Now, initially, there was a, uh, a plan by Booth and others to kidnap Abraham Lincoln, and it's pretty clear that John Surratt knew about this and was involved in it. He even, uh, you, you point out his, his defense at one of his trials actually essentially says, yeah, he was in that conspiracy, just not the murder one. Yeah. Uh, so so t- tell us about the kidnapping plan. The kidnapping plan, which uh, was Booth's at one point and had been uh, you know, talked about by a number of other people uh, at various times, in the years before Booth got involved, uh, was the idea of seizing Lincoln somewhere, perhaps by the old soldier's home, which was on the outskirts of, of the District of Columbia, and he spent a lot of time there, especially in the hot summer months, and uh, transporting him down across the Potomac and holding him hostage with the idea of trading him for Confederate prisoners of war. And that was the essence or, or broad overview of the, of the plot. And, and then in uh, Booth's particular instance, we know that they came, that they thought he was going, that Lincoln was going to attend a, a play at the old soldier's home uh, probably around March 17 of 1865. And Booth and his fellow conspirators, including Surratt, galloped out to be present for that play uh, with the idea that Surratt's job was going to be to jump into the box on, on, uh, on the wagon that they held Lincoln in and drive it down to Maryland, um, but Lincoln didn't show up, and so that fizzled. Did you make an argument that struck me because my, uh, my colleague, my late colleague, uh, David Long, who taught here for many years, uh, made the same argument in an article in North and South Magazine, which was that the plan to kidnap Lincoln is tantamount to a plan to murder him because he's bound to resist. And that's step one. Step two is uh, it's well known that the Union cavalry raid, uh, known now as the Dahlgren raid on Richmond, had as part of its plan the idea of kidnapping Jefferson Davis and therefore, if Lincoln approved the Dahlgren raid and kidnapping is tantamount to killing, then Lincoln approved the killing of Davis. And therefore, it's quite possible that Davis in turn approved the killing of Lincoln. To and me, I, I follow you on most of that. I, I'm okay. not sure that I, I see evidence that Lincoln, as opposed to perhaps Stanton, uh, approved the Dahlgren raid, but mm-hmm. we don't know. 
No. At least I don't know. Maybe you know. Well, well, again, my, my colleague uh, David David Long argued that Lincoln had to have known, and there were mm-hmm. personal connections between Lincoln and the Dahlgren family. Yeah, there's there's a good argument. Yeah. But it, is that is that going too far to to equate the two? That that if you agree to kidnap someone, you're agreeing to murder them. If well, a police officer arrests someone, that certainly they're not. We don't expect them to shoot that person in the process routinely. Well, it's maybe that's not the best metaphor these days, but uh, unfortunately, yeah. But uh, uh, I don't think I don't think it depends on whether you're talking about legally. Certainly, mm-hmm. that's not proof in a court of law of an intent to murder. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the evidence is that Davis himself early on. Uh, probably in 1862, when the idea of kidnapping Lincoln was first brought to him, probably rejected it, saying, "It's you know, I assume he, him to be a man of strength and integrity, and he will resist, and and so I'm not going to approve this. Uh, so he recognized that link. Um, and so I think it shows uh, certainly a state of mind of willingness to kill the victim of a kidnapping, because that is the power of a kidnapping. Your leverage comes from that threat, the very threat of deliver the ransom or I will kill, or in this case, deliver the prisoners of war or he will be killed. So that threat is inherent in it. There's also, of course, the felony murder aspect, which is that in the course of committing a a felony such as kidnapping, anyone who is killed uh, then all who are involved are are guilty of murder, even if their intent was only to participate in the felt the original felony, the killing. At, at, I remember having arguments with people about that. What if you're embezzling, which is a felony, but somebody dies of a heart attack in the process? You know, is that felony murder? Uh, that's the kind of thing you talk about at night in law school. Uh, <laughs> I think but, the answer is no, because it's not one of the things listed in the current felony murder statutes. But under the common law, I can't tell you what the original common law rule was. So, but your point about uh, Davis and recognizing the, the connection, well, uh, let me put it this way, turning up the heat by 1864, uh, late 64, 65, in the aftermath of the Dahlgren raid, both sides are certainly thinking differently about the war and about the rules of war. And one of the the threads within your book is the degree of the involvement of the Confederate government. Right. Uh, the, and I want to and I want to be clear. Mm-hmm. I do not purport to set forth direct evidence that Jefferson Davis was involved and I think I've stated that carefully throughout the book. Mm-hmm. in the plot to murder Lincoln or in the assassination of Lincoln. What I say is that uh, I think there's very strong direct evidence that he was aware generally of Booth's plot, probably through information brought to him by Surratt, and that generally at the stage that it was a kidnapping plot, and that he was also setting other things in motion, in last desperate steps, like maybe Harney going up with explosives towards D.C. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, 
there's no definitive proof. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence that he may have been involved in giving an order, but for, again, it may be that what his order was was, no, don't do this, because he didn't. there's nothing written down. We don't have an order, and we wouldn't really expect to find something in writing. No, and if, if for whatever reason something were put in writing, when you're abandoning Richmond uh, in April 2nd, 1865, about the first thing that would go in the furnace would be copies of those orders. Sure. Uh, so, so those are unlikely to survive if they ever did exist. But Surratt does travel back and forth between Richmond and the North, you show. So it's conceivable that he he had contact with members of the Confederate government, with Judah Benjamin, for example. Uh, so it's not out of the question that, that he conveyed messages from the highest levels of the Confederate government. Well, that's certainly true also. I mean, Surratt was doing nothing but working with Booth on his evolving plot against Lincoln from the end of December 1864 until uh, just two weeks before the assassination and possibly thereafter. I mean, there's also indication there was communication when Surratt was in Montreal April 10th, two days before. And we know, of course, his mother was in communication with Booth until the very day of the assassination. So um, he's doing nothing but working on this plot, and then he goes and he sees uh, Judah Benjamin, and if Weichmann is to be believed, also Jefferson Davis, sometime between March 29 and April 1st, and has conferences with them, what's he going to talk about? We don't know. We don't have a fly on the wall, but it certainly is strong circumstantial evidence that what was being discussed is that plot that Surratt had been working on all this time, along with Wilkes Booth. You mentioned you went to Montreal, and you show that there's a substantial Confederate Secret Service operation in Canada. That's not uh, a new discovery, but clearly uh, Surratt goes there, is, is talking with people. There's a the General Edward Lee, not Robert E. Lee, but a different Edwin, General yeah. Lee, who is uh, uh, involved in, in running Confederate secret operations there. Is where where is Surratt at the time of the assassination? Is he in Canada? Is he in Washington? What does he well, actually? He's, he's <laughs> the, the elusive John <laughs> Surratt, and, and you know, uh, you were quoting from your previous speaker about. History is exciting, and it's the job of the historian to make it, ex- you know, communicate mm-hmm. that excitement. And I completely agree with that because it is such an exciting and it's a mystery, you mm-hmm. know, trying to unravel all this, all these threads from the assassination. And one of the great mysteries is where was Surratt on the day of the assassination? And at his trial, which came in 1867 the government put on 11 witnesses, eyewitnesses, to testify that they saw John Surratt in uh, Washington, D.C. on the day of the assassination. And, and, and then there were, uh, there were a few ancillary bits of evidence also. At the same time, Surratt put on six witnesses, a very sober, upstanding gentleman from Elmira who did not appear in any way to have been previously connected with the Confederacy and would have no particular motivation to lie, 
uh, identifying him as the fellow that they saw in Elmira, New York, on the day of the assassination, or at least the day before and the day after, and, and one, one of them on the day of. And, you know, travel being what it was, it was, it was virtually an impossibility for him to have scooted down so quickly from Elmira to D.C. and back to Elmira, so he was the man in two places at once, if you're to believe all that testimony. So clearly that not everybody can be um, accurate, and it doesn't mean the witnesses are lying, although some of them may be, and we know there was a lot of perjury uh, propagated around the time of the assassination. Uh, but uh, I think he was in Elmira. That's my best conclusion. But again, I lay out the evidence both ways and let the reader draw their own conclusions. What would he be doing in Elmira? His story was that he was sent there by General Lee, this is Edwin Lee from Canada, assigned to go down and surveil the uh, prison at Elmira for a possible possible, uh, POW break. One of the problems with that story is that there's a letter from December of 1864 when Jacob uh, Thompson was was finishing up his service as head of the Confederate Secret Service operations in Canada. He gave a lengthy report to Judah Benjamin, Confederate Secretary of State, and he said, you know, we've surveilled that prison in Elmira, and we don't feel that there's any uh, reasonable chance of having a successful break there. So unless Lee just didn't believe Thompson or wasn't aware of it, which seems unlikely, and he was just wanting to reinvent the wheel, this does not seem like a likely assignment. And the other problem with it is it's kind of too late in the game to be breaking prisoners of war out and hoping to have any effect on the war by the time, you know, we're talking about April 10th or so that he's supposedly ordered to go down there. And so uh, I think that's a cover story. I don't really think that's what he was doing down there. Um, it's question what he was doing, possibly just supposed to wander around and show himself dressed as a Canadian in a bowler cap and a Garibaldi jacket so he'd have a good alibi. And uh, it, when he eventually, is, is years later, uh, caught and tried, the question of where he was at the time of the assassination does become a major factor. Uh, one of the things that my wife has often urged me to do is to write a bestseller that will make millions of dollars. And when I talk about the next possible history book, she'll say, "Is is there sex in it? That, you know, if you're going, how are you going to make a million dollars?" There isn't in this in, in your book explicitly, but there is a romantic interest. Uh, there's a woman who just keeps showing up chapter after chapter, uh, wherever Surratt goes, uh, she seems to be there or he's going to meet her. Uh, who is she and what role did she play? Ah, yes, Sarah Nettie Slater. And I often call her Nettie Slater because that's what her family called her, but uh, often called Sarah Slater. And she's got several aliases as well. Uh, she was... Uh, she was originally from the north, uh, but her father had moved down to North Carolina uh, sh- shortly before the war broke out, and she had followed. And she had married uh, a fellow there by the name of Slater because her, her, her maiden name was Renault, 
uh, or at least that's her mother's maiden name. Uh, what was hers? Uh, I forgot offhand. But anyway, um, her birth name. And so then she married the dance master, dancing master, Mr. Slater, and, and became Sarah Nettie Slater. And he was a he be, he got a commissar's job and supplied uh, the army for quite a while, which enabled him to stay at home. And through about 1864, but then uh, fortunes changed, and he had to actually go into active service. And she was left alone, and so she, uh, for whatever reason, had enlisted or offered her services. Uh, to the Confederacy as a way of um, getting back up north and visiting with her mother, who was in New York uh, State, New York City, actually, and her sister, who was up there. And she could pass back and forth. And there were a number of women who served in espionage because they could pass more easily than men with arousing less suspicion. So... Well, that brings us to another uh, point about the, the that comes up repeatedly in this book, uh, the, the gender aspect, not only of Mrs. Slater, who can travel apparently somewhat freely with Surratt without arousing suspicion, but also Surratt's mother, uh, Mary Surratt, is famous as the first woman executed by the federal government in American history. Uh, one version many of us learned as children was she was innocent, uh, boarding house owner where the bad guys happened to be staying and she just got uh, executed along with the rest. But there are other versions and what we'll do now is take a short break, come right back and talk a little bit about the role of Mrs. Surratt in the life of her son who is the subject of the book John Surratt, The Lincoln Assassin Who Got Away by our guest tonight, Michael Shine. I'm Jerry Prokopovich and this is this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Talking this evening with Michael Schein, author of John Surratt, The Lincoln Assassin Who Got Away. One of the Lincoln conspirators who didn't get away was his mother, Mrs. Mary Surratt, uh, executed along with uh, uh, Pat Surratt and Powell and various other conspirators. What um, uh, it, it's safe to say from from this book that you conclude she was uh, fully engaged in the conspiracy. Is that is that a fair cons- conclusion? That's a fair conclusion. That doesn't necessarily constitute a comment on the fairness of her trial, mm-hmm. uh, but in terms of the historical evidence, yes. What what did she do that that uh, that brings you to that conclusion? Um. Well, among other things, it appears that on the day of the assassination, April 14th, 1865, she met with John Wilkes Booth at her house, and she was given, wrapped in brown paper, some spy glasses, uh, that she then had Lewis Weichmann go out and rent a wagon and brought her down, or a carriage, and bring her down to Surrattsville Tavern, where John Surratt had previously hidden some carbines, military-grade rifles um, that were belonging that belonged to John Wilkes Booth, and she carried the spyglasses down to John Lloyd, her tenant, and told him to have it and uh, those uh, weapons ready for some uh, men who'd be calling for them that night, which uh, not only uh, was great in terms of aiding the a conspiracy, because they did come down that night. They picked up a carbine and some whiskey and the spy glasses and used them. Uh, but uh, indicates foreknowledge that uh, that uh, the events were going that action against Lincoln would be taken that night. So she she knew there was something going on uh, from the people who were frequenting her place. Uh, let me. Well, no, pretty this t- specific something, mm-hmm. I think, uh, and carrying out carrying material support for the conspiracy too. Now that ties in with the fact that uh, immediately after the assassination, uh, Surratt wastes no time getting out of uh, Elmira or wherever he may have been back up to Canada, and hides out, where he spends the the next number of weeks while his mother's on trial and while his mother's uh, ultimately is executed. Yeah, he, he wastes a little bit of time, uh, and this ties back into our mysterious veiled lady uh, spy, Mrs. Slater, mm-hmm. because it seems that she was reportedly quite beautiful, and he's a young fella, and she's a young woman, and it seems like not only had they traveled to Richmond together two weeks before the assassination... Uh, but he may have uh, been smitten by her, so he goes over to Albany instead of taking the quickest route out of Canada ah. from Canandaigua uh, mm-hmm. through Niagara Falls and possibly meets up with her because the two of them uh, sign in at the uh, at the St. Lawrence House in Montreal on April 18th. 
but he does get out of there, uh, and he takes perhaps his girlfriend spy with him, but not his mother, no. <laughs> and while she's on trial, I mean, if, if, if he's the number two man in the conspiracy, the one who's been working with Booth all these weeks, uh, could he not have come forward and said, yes, I was helping him, but my mother had nothing to do with it? Well, he could have done that, but he didn't. He was certainly severely criticized for not doing something like that. The ar- one of the arguments in his defense, and this isn't his argument per se, but one of the arguments many of his supporters made is there would be no point in him coming down. They just would have hung them both. And that may be. We don't know. But it also seems, I mean, Surratt was the guy they really wanted. His picture was up at the top of the wanted poster right next to John Wilkes Booth, and he was viewed as uh, second in command. And he probably could have made a deal along the lines of, if I turn myself in, you take the death penalty off the table with regard to my mother. And that is the kind of deal that is more credibly uh, within the reach of possibility. Not that she would have escaped all punishment, but that at least she would not have been hanged. Now, of course, his mother didn't want him to do something like that. She was a good mother, and she would prefer to give herself up uh, if necessary so that her son could get away. That, that's, you know, but that doesn't necessarily relieve him of his responsibility. It's a very complex family dynamic and legal dynamic and political dynamic all working here. Uh, You make the point that if he recognized that she was part of the plot, that she knew what was going on and was essentially uh, a guilty member of the conspiracy, then the motive to come forward is not quite as strong as if she were completely uninvolved. Uh, It's one thing to come forward and say, I'm saving an innocent person. It's another thing to come forward and say, well, I'll save a guilty person and give up my guilty life. Uh, There's a stronger motive to be a martyr for someone who's innocent than for someone who isn't. Yes, I think that that's a point that has been somewhat overlooked, uh, that um, if his mother was completely entangled despite absolute innocence, and he never... Never. Even later on in 1870, he's beyond the reach of all prosecution. It's over. He protests his own innocence when he gives his lectures in Rockville, Maryland. He doesn't, he doesn't say, my mother was innocent. And the newspapers called him out on it. It was, only, it was left to Lewis Powell to say that she was innocent and knew nothing about it. <laughs> Lewis Powell, of all people. But Surratt <clears throat> did not do so. I I don't think he believed it. I mean, he could have gone and lied for her. He certainly lied plenty for himself, but he didn't. Now, I imagine some listeners are thinking, okay, we've got him dashing away or at least sauntering away with his girlfriend up to Canada after the assassination. And then we've got him five years later giving public lectures in the North. Uh, What happened in between? And for that, uh, listeners are going to have to buy a copy of the book to, to get all the details. But the, 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 the chapters between there reminded me of uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, although the Sherlock Holmes stories come out maybe 20 years later. 
but in terms of the coincidences and the the unlikely things that happen, uh, by which uh, uh, Surratt gets away from Canada to England, uh, uh, he goes. Does he go to France there? Or does he go straight to Italy? I'm trying to remember now. Uh, yeah, he, he goes uh, through Paris, uh, takes in Versailles, and then heads down to Rome, where he enlists in the Pope's army called the Papal Zouaves. And and now he's in another war against Garibaldi and his uh, people fighting for the unification of Italy. Uh, then there's it's just all. Uh, I mean, it would make a. a ridiculous sort of novel if it were not in fact documented uh, the things <laughs> well, that happened truth is stranger than fiction it, it's quite an adventure <laughs> the the uh, leap off a cliff and being saved by landing in a mound of dung is uh, uh, it, it's it's too much um, we have only a couple minutes left let me skip uh, ahead and, and listeners you will want to get a copy of this and find out all the details um let me throw in the gratuitous criticism while, while before we run out of time. If I were your editor, I would say number your footnotes separately for each chapter. Um, I'm trying to recall if that's a legal thing as opposed to a historical thing, but we get up to we get to four-digit footnotes by the time we're done. <laughs> and, uh, well, that's my publisher. They decide the format of the book. I wanted the footnotes at the end of the book, but that's not the way they do it. So no. that's fine. I mean, I don't. I've heard both sides. Some readers say they love to have the footnotes right after the chapter, and in that case, I do agree with you that it should restart. But whatever. No, it, it, I actually do like them after the chapter as well. I think there's, there's, it, they're easier to come across, and they give you a break, and you can assimilate them and move on to the next, especially the textual ones. Uh, it was just the numbering where I would have told my student uh, renumber your <laughs> footnotes, um, but. In the final chapters, we get to the fact that finally uh, Surratt is recognized in Italy and brought back to the United States, and the federal government does try to bring him to justice. There is a trial. Uh, and here, again, this is really where we started our talk. Uh, the, your legal background comes through in discussing the merits of the indictment. Is he in being indicted for murder? or conspiracy uh, when he is put on trial because it makes a difference what you have to prove, obviously. And uh, since we only have a minute left, let me just ask the question this way. Could a better set of lawyers have gotten a different result than the hung jury if the government had argued its case better? Well... In your opinion? Uh, you know, I... I think that perhaps a better set of lawyers could have gotten him convicted of conspiracy to kidnap Lincoln, which would have been an accomplishment of something. Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of uh, conspiracy to uh, involvement in the assassination, I think that in drawing a jury in the District of Columbia in 1867, you get too many people who invested too much of their heart and soul in, in the Confederacy and were ex-Confederates and sympathetic to some extent with Surratt to really get him convicted of the capital crime, perhaps, of, of participation in the assassination. Uh, there was a lot of sympathy for him among some of those jurors who, who were ex-Confederates. 
And as you know, this also ties in with Andrew Johnson's presidency, with the struggle between the Republicans and Congress and the executive, with Reconstruction. The, the, this trial doesn't take place in a vacuum. Uh, it's it's a fascinating look at a, a piece of the assassination. I'm not an assassination aficionado. Uh, I'm more interested in the living Lincoln than the uh, the death of Lincoln. But this book really does draw together a lot of interesting threads. And uh, while avoiding the hysterias may be too strong, but you know how conspiracy people get sometimes. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, it has been a, a, a very too fast hour uh, passing and a too fast season. Uh, but thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jerry. I really do appreciate it, and I appreciate the work you're doing. And listen, and let me say also thanks to uh, to Mike, uh, Kevin, anyone else at Voice America who engineered the show this past year. We'll be back with live shows on September 2nd. Uh, and until then, listeners, thank you as always for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.